0: A warm welcome to Whitehall Sources. We are about to bring you inside analysis on UK politics in association with The Resident. Did you know that The Resident, Covent Garden, is the number one rated hotel on TripAdvisor out of nearly 1,200 options in London? Now, opinion pollsters would tell you that that sample size is enough to convince you to lend resident hotels your support the next time you elect to stay in London or Liverpool. Thanks for being here. Whitehall Sources starts now.
1: The Prime Minister is not uh, under a desk as the... I will lead the Conservatives into the next general election. Definitely. Well, look... (laughs) I am a fighter and
0: not a quitter. Our thanks there to Penny Mordant for what's already become an eternal classic, and of course the current Prime Minister at time of recording anyway. Welcome to Whitehall Sources. I'm Callum MacDonald with Kirsty Buchanan, former advisor to Liz Truss when she was Secretary of State for Justice, and Theresa May when she was Prime Minister. Also, Oscar Reddrops here, a Boris Johnson advisor. This week, as we take you behind the door of Number 10 Downing Street, Liz Truss clings on at another Prime Minister's questions, the Home Secretary resigns, and we committed news... So we're going to clear up who Liz Truss did not want to appear alongside on BBC Question Time when she was Secretary of State. Also on this episode, we will open the doors to the Correspondence Unit to read all of your emails and comment and answer some of your questions as well. Plus, later on the episode, Checkers and Balances, a new part of the podcast where we invite an advisor of the opposition to join us and have their say thank you so much for finding us thank you for listening follow subscribe to the podcast find us on social media just search whitehall sources we're on instagram we're on twitter we're on tiktok for extra clips and to get in touch and to be across the next viral moment or you can email us anytime the inbox is always open the email address is hello at whitehall Well, we begin today's podcast at number 33 in the Apple podcast chart for politics. We're just we're wedged in quite nicely, actually, between the BBC and the Telegraph. So that's quite nice to be in there um, with, uh, well, fairly reputable people, at least. Um, first, though, Kirsty and Oscar, episode three. <laughs> in one week, it feels like we've had, I don't know, three series worth of podcastable news. Um it's, to be honest, it's actually difficult to find the right time to record these episodes because there is so much going on and so much changing so quickly and all the time. So much so, actually, that a bit of a bit of um, media excitement about our last episode is, is probably already consigned to the dustbin of history. Um, but Kirsty, you, you, you've gone quite viral.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a cream for that. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah uh, so uh, i committed uh, accidentally committed some news last week by um uh, my little color story about mm. how i used to get the uh, now prime minister out of the jam of having to go to uh, do question time in sort of far-flung parts of the uk um now uh, in in fairness to the prime minister just to put this in context uh two or three times i might have suggested to number 10 that she couldn't do it because various members of her family were sickly or and or she had to go to funerals etc etc so um uh this wasn't you know liz truss's media strategy this was a inexperienced spad trying to take the path of least resistance with number 10 so uh mia culprit on that one and, and also uh speaking as a uh, both a cousin and an aunt myself. I meant no offence by referring to aunts and cousins as minor members of the family. It says more about the, the makeups and the dynamics of my family than than, than other people's families, but I meant no offence by No,
0: and that, I think that's, I think, you know, there's been a lot of interpretation of it and and that's fine. I mean, as you say, we all uh, genuinely, we just, we, we thought, when I heard it, I just thought, well, this is an interesting story about the me- mechanics of this and how these sort of strategies work. You know, it's not a capital offence to to get out of going on question time. It's, you know, it's not a grave issue. Um, And she did do it, is the other thing to mention, while she was Secretary of State, she did question time.
1: You know, I, I do feel that I owe the, direct, the then director of communications at number 10 an apology for this, though. So, apologies, <laughs> Katie Perry.
0: <laughs> well, there we are. Yeah, the apology has been made. Um, I mean, the other thing to emerge, of course, though, from the clip, perhaps m- more interestingly, arguably, uh, was who, the, who she was keen to avoid. Um, And the internet has been, frankly, alight with who it may have been. In fact, with people Googling frantically, commenting on the TikTok video, replying to the, can somebody Google this? Has anyone got the question time cast list for Mm. series whatever, two years, blah, blah, blah. And so everyone has been diving around on the internet to try to work out who it was that she she most wanted to avoid, which I found particularly entertaining, actually, about the whole thing.
1: I've even, I've even had a former colleague text me and say, it wasn't, it wasn't me. Was it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is brilliant. I've also, so until a couple of hours ago, I didn't know who it was. I deliberately not asked you, Kirsty, because when uh, I had a few, just a few friends text me saying, who was it? Who was it? I was like, I genuinely don't know. I do now know. And we will tell you before the end of this podcast. So stick with us. Oh, Callum, um, <laughs> that was smooth. I'm often called a tease. What can I say? Uh, Stick with us because on this episode you will find out who it was that Liz Truss wanted to avoid on Question Time. And was unsuccessful <laughs> in avoiding on question time. Uh gosh, yes, what a strange day. But as we say, um, Kirsty, you've been overtaken by events, frankly. We all have trying to keep up. I mean, we're getting texts left, right, and center, twisters refreshing like a mad thing. It's all a bit crazy, really, because in the last few minutes, we're recording this on Wednesday, the nineteenth of October, just after five o'clock. Literally in the last few minutes, the home secretary has well has departed. And there was initial confusion about whether she had resigned or whether she had been fired. She has now published her resignation letter, which is pretty feisty. Um, and in fact, the first line is it is with the greatest regret that I am choosing to tender my resignation. Um, I suppose Oscar context first of all, because Suela Braverman going leaving the role of Home Secretary means the Prime Minister has lost. Her first choice for minister in two great offices of state in less than a week now.
2: Yes, and Suella um, was a very popular appointment within the right of the party. You know, she, she was absolutely reflective of, I think, key tenets of the 2019 manifesto with regards to immigration in particular. And actually, as we see with all the protests, you know, Just Stop Oil over the last few weeks and months. Uh, a really, really no-nonsense, tough attitude to policing. I mean, uh, we've talked about question time already. I mean, it, my experience at number 10, Suella was someone who was really up for doing those uh, kind of confrontational media uh, performances and was very, very good at it. Uh, she was someone that we felt we could rely upon, who would absolutely understand the, the. I know this can be, sound a bit lazy sometimes, but that that red wall headspace Uh, those attitudes you know the anti-woke stuff uh, and as we said immigration and policing she really really understood and could tap into that um so in that sense and we do on this podcast often talk about you know the the comm strategy Mm. she will be a lot she'll be she really will be a loss having said that and we will, of course, go on to talk about it, I think, in further detail. <laughs> what,
0: so is everyone was okay? What was that? <laughs> that,
1: <laughs> you get excited. That, was, that was someone doing a wheelie down my street. Oh, it, I, it's, I, quite, it's quite mean in, in the hard streets of Worthing sometimes. <laughs> I thought it? Downing Street had
0: sent a fast car to, to parachute you in, <laughs> Kirsty.
1: <laughs> or to carry get me off, one of the two. <laughs> right, go on, Oscar. <laughs> Sorry. We'll carry on
0: about the, the home set.
2: So, um... <laughs> Having said all that, and we will talk about it in more detail, I'm sure, uh, that resignation letter, the two-parter resignation like that, I really, really haven't. You know, you read the first half and it's, I made a mistake, hold hands up, I will have to resign on this. And the second half is utterly brutal and is stoking fires to come.
0: Well, Let's read a bit of the letter um, for the reasons that you mentioned. Uh, Dear Prime Minister, it is with the greatest regret that I'm choosing to tender my resignation. Earlier today, I sent an official document from my personal email to a trusted parliamentary colleague as part of policy engagement and with the aim of garnering support for government policy on migration. This constitutes a technical infringement of the rules. As you know, the document was a draft, written ministerial statement about migration due for publication imminently. Much of it had already been briefed to MPs. Nevertheless, it is right for me to go. So Ella Brevman goes on. As soon as I realised the mistake, I reported it on official channels. I informed the cabinet secretary. I've made a mistake. I accept responsibility. I resign. And you're right. That's part one of the letter. Perhaps we should think about that first of all, Kirsty, because... um, I mean, it is an infringement of the rules, as she says. So, has she done the honourable thing here?
1: Yeah, right. Just, just to be clear, the technical breach that Soella is claiming forced her resignation is sharing a draft at WMS, as they say in the trade, which is a written ministerial statement. The idea that sharing that with a colleague from your personal account or otherwise is a is a resignation matter is risible. So, this is a this is a trojan horse of an excuse if you like the real purpose of the letter this isn't so much a resignation letter as a, as a firing of several torpedo tubes um it's partly obviously about differences of policy but the, the most code it's not even coded the, the most obvious point of this is you know uh, the business of government relies on people accepting responsibility for their mistakes Dot. dot dot I've made a mistake, I accept responsibility, I resign." Now, it's too early to say, but if you go back to last night, which seems like a million years ago now, that the Prime Minister was having a meeting with the ERG, which is the kind of right-wing rump of the Conservative Party. It's quite influential. There's somewhere between 80 and 100 members of that caucus. It's an extremely influential part of the party and it's the part of the party to which liz truss uh relied on for her uh, election because uh this was this is a tax cutting agenda on which she she stood and it was popular with the right of the party so yesterday she had a meeting with the erg it was described as warm and convivial um and yet here we are less than 24 hours later uh one of the champions one of the darlings if you like of the erg has resigned on what seems like the flimsiest of excuses uh, and and has basically said that she has policy directions and ethical directions with the prime minister's leadership and it and it feels awfully to me like a potential challenge from the right
2: and this is exactly what we've been talking about on previous episodes kirsty is just how she you know the, the the car analogy again but how she drives and how she negotiates uh, a, a clear path without crashing and scraping into the two sides of the party this is completely symptomatic of that and you know we've talked about i remember when jeremy hunt announced uh, a, a very, very different economic plan to the one that was proposed when Liz became Prime Minister, that that would result in conflicts in terms of, you know, defence spending, for example. But, but but it's also, it's it's it, it, the politics. It's not just economic plans now. It's just the outright optics and politics of decision-making from Number 10 that she's going to keep crashing into either side of the party.
1: I mean, look, 100%, I hate to revive our tortuous car analogy, but you know, <laughs> the, the, the Prime Minister is not driving, you know, uh, the the Ford government uh, fiesta anymore. And actually what we're now seeing is two different sides of the party wrestling for control of the wheel. So as she has to reach out to the moderates, the centrists, the Rishi Sunak team, if you like, to try and right the ship, That is then exacerbating and angering the right of the party for whom she relies on for her base of support. So you've got both these sides now kind of fighting for who's controlling the car and which direction that car is is going to go in.
2: When Boris Johnson was facing, you know, calls to resign and the MP's letters were going in, something that was briefed out by Number 10 at the time and, you know, probably felt very obviously selfish and just all about self-preservation, but it it has borne out. You know, Boris actually held those wings of the party together through very difficult times pretty well. And actually, when you remove that ringleader... Mm The, the circus was was you know the, the, the animals perhaps were going to start running riot a little bit and and, and he was a, a real real competent leader in marrying those two sides of the party and actually by and large getting them to agree on most of the big decisions in the party and and, and was quite smart with his trade-offs on policy in particular. Um, so that was a fear that we did brief out at the time and, and I do think that, has, that that has borne out.
0: It's really interesting. What what do we make then of this take? And I'm very happy for us uh, regularly to pour the coldest of ice on the hottest of takes, by the way, on this podcast. Uh, but Breverman resignation reads like first draft of her next leadership bid. Quote, I have concerns about the direction of this government. Not only have we broken key pledges, but I have serious concerns about this government's commitment to honouring manifesto commitments. Um, is there anything in that, do you think? That, I mean, the word leadership in there and leadership bid, is that realistic at this point?
1: Well, it, it feels like positioning, doesn't it? I mean, I, it's too early to say whether, you know, this is the beginning of the end, but it, you know, it wouldn't be uh, the hugest surprise if if the ball were come loose from the back of the scrum to coin a great Boris Johnson phrase that, that <laughs> Suella would be diving in there to see if she could grab it. Um, as the champion and the darling of the of the right, so yeah, I mean it 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 reads partly like a like I say, a sort of damning indictment of of Liz Truss's uh, inability to uh, take responsibility for the budget fiasco, and you know, I mean, just to put this in perspective, this time last week, the Prime Minister had a different Chancellor and a different Home Secretary to the one that she has now. Just to give a sense of the instability that is you know that is at play here uh, and every time that she tries to make a move a sensible move to try and right the ship and you know reach out to parts of the party something comes along to just destabilize it again and this day uh, i mean amongst a number of days has been quite extraordinary in this sort of slow chipping away and this feeling of how much longer, how much longer can she survive with this level of instability around her?
2: Mm-hmm. It's almost, you almost think, instead of, uh, the, the Liz Truss government that uh, that came into power, you know, however, was it two two months ago? I can't even. I've lost track now.
0: Approximately, yeah. It,
2: it is no more. It is no more. It has a completely different economic uh, strategy. And now we're starting to see uh, in terms of, you know, secretaries of state and political footing of those uh, d- different caucuses of the party, a completely different makeup and emphasis, all battling. So in some ways, you do think instead of limping on throughout all these decisions and these conflicts and these obstacles that that, that Number 10 and, and the Prime Minister having to face, it is almost worth somehow, and, th- and this is what I think is good about this podcast, that we don't just, you know, add, you know, gas to the fire we try and take a step back and if we were in that building what advice we would give for survival and somehow create a stable enough window of time to actually have an int- actually hold your hands up mm. rather than on a case-by-case basis and just say we are having a reset because in it, it, almost branded as that almost do a campaign on it we are we are resetting and, and 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 people will say well then she's in office and she's not in power but in some way she's then maybe starting to str- you know straddle back a bit of ownership of the situation
1: some of what she's been doing over the last week to, to that point Oscar is is right i think you know we've seen her reaching out to parts of the party to have them in to talk to them to try and get buy-in for what is now the mini budget as opposed to you know mini budget 2.0 if you like um you know we've 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 seen her go to the to the power base of, of her power base of the ERG. We've seen her bring back David Canzini, who is a, a smart and sharp political operator. She got a lot of criticism when he was removed, when she came into office in favour of Mark Fulbrook as her chief of staff. And I think there will be a lot of welcome about that. She has clearly ceded... Um, control of the treasury back to orthodoxy and back to the moderates if you like under jeremy hunt who is a calm and stabilizing influence but if you're trying to stabilize one side then of the ship then you run the risk of destabilizing the other side and that's what we've seen today with suella braverman's as i say flimsiest of excuses to resign and fire what feels like a, you know, an early shot in a potential leadership contest.
0: Just want to mention this, because as we're speaking, the Prime Minister has issued her statement uh, to Suella Braverman, uh, which is summed up, by the way, by Alex Wickham from Bloomberg as Truss's letter to Braverman... I hate you, bye. Uh, Here's some of the language from it. Dear Suella, thank you for your letter. I accept your resignation, respect the decision you've made. It is important that the ministerial code is upheld and that cabinet confidentiality is respected. Uh, I'm grateful for your service as Home Secretary. Your time in office has been marked by your steadfast commitment to keeping the British people safe. Uh, You oversaw the largest ever ceremonial policing operation. Thousands of officers deployed for the safety of the Royal Family and those for um, mourning Her Majesty the Queen. I'm also grateful for your previous work as Attorney General, as my Cabinet colleague, and in particular, your work on the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. I look forward to working with you in the future and wish you all the best. Is that cold? Are we feeling icy? I don't know. Is that kind of to be expected in terms of language from a Prime Minister to a departing Home Secretary who, if, as we're saying, and by the way, Dominic Cummings happens to agree that actually this reason for resignation is flimsy at best, and she's definitely been fired, is his analysis on Twitter in the last few minutes. But actually, if we're to go with that, that she has been fired, that she has been asked to leave, and Grant Shapps is confirmed as the new Home Secretary, then this letter is, that's kind of it, really. It's what you do out the door.
1: Yeah, I don't don't think she's been fired. I think she has chosen to To go, um, and as I say, use this to position herself as an early contender for any potential uh, challenge from from the right. Mm. Um, it, it, I mean, it's a great line. Uh, it is it is a bit gritted teeth, but uh, it it does all the normal things that a prime minister a letter does for an outgoing uh, secretary of state. It lists their achievements. There's no great huggy feely stuff in there that you'd expect with a with a close you know personal friend uh but i think it's a i think it's a fair enough letter if i'm going to be honest yeah
2: it's pretty deadpan it's pretty dry i think there's an acknowledge an acknowledgement the subtext that <laughs> obviously this has landed pretty loudly as you'd expect mm-hmm. and it's almost just uh it's almost like a, a, a letter template just chuck it in the pigeonhole. We move on. I think that's that. That's the la- in the language there. That's what the, that's what I'm getting from it, Callum.
0: So Ella Braverman has left. Then Grant Shapps is in as Home Secretary, but it's not the only staffing change that we want to reflect upon on Whitehall sources today. Let's talk about Jason Stein. It's about communications. It's about sort of chaotic communications, frankly, um, and it perhaps speaks to the difficulty that trust is having in managing the message at the moment. Would you agree with that? Just tell us what's happened.
1: What happened here was absolutely extraordinary. Sajid Javid was due to have the first question in Prime Minister's question time. And he has clearly said, right, if you do not act against this special advisor, who uh, rightly or wrongly is being blamed for saying some extremely offensive things about the former Home Secretary, and former chancellor if you don't act then i will ambush pmqs and make this an issue in pmqs which is what has prompted uh not just the suspension of, of jason stein but 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 also the the briefing out of it now this will hit the prime minister quite hard her and jason stein have been he's been a special advisor for hers on and off for for a very long time um But uh, the reason I was shaking my head so profusely (laughs) is it it comes back to my point about, um, you know, leadership and you lead, uh, you know, the the leader sets the tone. And uh, when you are at number 10, you know, there is a responsibility to brief uh, with the understanding that you are briefing as a representative of number 10, which means that, you know, whether you're you know, you've got an 80-seat majority or you haven't, crossing a road to make an enemy of someone is is not sensible and it's not smart. And right now uh, this is, you know, this was downright a uh, ridiculous thing for for them to do. And I don't know who was responsible for the, the briefing the week earlier about the darkness that lies with inside Michael Gove. but these are extraordinary briefings for... Uh, for, for people to be pushing out, and and I and I come back to the only time I think that we got um, a lot of criticism, and rightly so, um, around a briefing that was seen to come out of Number Ten, uh, and I don't, in fairness, think it did. Uh, was when there was uh, all the cabinet ministers under Theresa May were called to checkers. And someone put into one of the Sundays, I think it might have been Tim Shipman's Sunday Times Big Read, that there was, uh, you know, a, a number for the local cab. Uh, if any of the cabinet ministers wanted to get a cab and go home, in other words, you know, if you didn't sign up to our checkers deal, you might as well just quit cabinet and resign. This caused an extraordinary amount of bad feeling mm. An extraordinary. And I'm sure whoever briefed it thought it was very funny, in, you know, at the time uh, and a good line, but it caused a really, really bad you know, odour and a really bad feeling within the cabinet at a time when we needed them most. And I just don't think it's very advisable for anyone uh, operating in number 10 to be able to take cheap shots at people like that particularly at this moment in time when you need all the friends you can get.
0: So it looks like he's going to be investigated now by the Cabinet Office's Propriety and Ethics Unit, um, Truss's Press Secretary saying, I'm not going to get into individual staffing matters, but the Prime Minister has made it very clear to her team that some of the sorts of briefings that we've seen are completely unacceptable about parliamentary colleagues, and they must stop. You were mentioning PMQs there, Kirsty, because in the end, Sajid Javid didn't ask a question at all, you know, in terms of what the plan had been. And this from Robert Peston caught my eye. Massive Downing Street pylon against Sajid Javid. If Saj hadn't humiliated the PM by forcing her to suspend advisor Stein, he'd probably be Home Secretary now, not Grant Shapps. And so the political ins and outs of this are quite interesting. I can't believe it's taken me three episodes to reference the greatest television programme of all time, The West Wing, um, which I've watched all seven seasons of about 11 or 12 times now and it' just remind it reminds me of a, a moment in, in that series where there is there is a leak and uh, Toby Ziegler who is the communications director gathers everyone in the canteen to give them a, a talking to but it's not a row. it's a very sort of when your parents would kind of sit you down and say, you know I'm not angry, I am just disappointed. It's that sort of thing, and the point that he makes, and I think this applies here, despite the kind of slightly flimsy West Wing-esque thing, which I realise is a dangerous thing to do with actual political professionals um, <laughs> sitting on the podcast too. But w- w- the thing that he gets at is, we're this is a team effort, and I've got your back, and I need to know you've got mine. And he makes the point, everyone exactly likes to be the person in the know, everyone likes to have the information, and the way you demonstrate you have the information is by... Telling somebody, and then it ends up on the front page of a newspaper, and then it all feels very exciting and significant. But he's like, that's not how this how this team needs to work. And I just wonder if if that's pertinent. Go on, Kirsty.
1: Well, first of all, you're entirely wrong. Borgen is the best political (laughs) drama of all time, not the West Wing. And there is, by the way, also nothing that Politico types like more than debating what (laughs) is the best political drama (laughs) of all time. So just getting on in there. don't need an
2: episode on that, guys. (laughs) Uh, This is the next viral clip.
1: <laughs> this, is, this is this is not off debate, it's clearly Borgen. Um, uh, but look look as you say, look, it's easy to uh, you know get a headline or um, get a sort of funny or witty aside into a you know into a, into a read through or into sort of background coverage. What is much harder when you work at number ten is to move forward a story in a uh, in a positive way. You need you need defenders. You know, as spads, if you like, but you also need creative midfielders, people that will make a play and you know push a narrative of a of a government forward uh, in a way that is that is positive and engaging and that can you know get the media to write about that uh, as much as just you know focusing on the psychodrama i mean clearly right now there is no creative midfielder in the universe that would be able to, to to cover where we are uh, in terms of the narrative but you know when in a more stable time you know it's just you know it's just the easiest thing in the world to, to, to do cheaper sides it's very easy to you know find a willing audience in the media of course but it it just doesn't advance the cause and it's and it's really not helpful
2: can I, can I nominate myself as that creative midfielder and I'm more than willing for Kirsty to like a defensive midfielder two foot tackle me off the pitch onto a stretcher
1: it is never a good idea to go studs up on anything it's, it's, the, it's the point I'm trying very to make
2: <laughs> what, what I would say and I, I may very much have my head in the clouds but you know maybe that's just where things are at right now so why why the hell not join them yeah but 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 i do think there is a message that can be briefed from number 10 and there there is a narrative to tell here where unforced error yes that's partly why we are here that's absolutely why we're we're at where we're at but nonetheless this government during an unprecedented time is going under an unprecedented unprecedented reconstruction job and that has never been done before. And we are going to do it in a timely fashion. And you can contrast that actually with the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn. That, you know, and people have drawn parallels between Liz's uh, uh, and Quasi's thinking, you know, just at the other end of the spectrum, and what Corbyn and McDonald did to the Labour Party. But actually, what we're doing is they took two failed general elections to sort themselves out and get them housed in order. We are going to do it in two months, two weeks, and I think there is a story to be told there that you can you kind of channel the dysfunctionality that we're seeing into something that is uh, unprecedented, and you can kind of vert, convert it into a positive streamlined message moving forward. gone, Kirsty. Uh,
1: I I applaud your optimism, Oscar. But I, I take his
0: point, though, that actually if you kind of shuffle the shuffle the shambles in such a way, you're kind of... You, but you know what? You're kind of sifting out, sifting out... Say that
1: three times quickly.
0: Shoving, shoving the shambles. I'll end up sounding like the person who was briefing against Sajid Javid, if I'm not too careful with all these SH words. It's, so you shuffle the shambles and then you're kind of left with this kind of refined team but i i wonder if but, but cons- that
1: that pre- presupposes that you are still in charge and that you Abs- have that grip true. which comes back to our tedious you know who's driving the car analogy <laughs> mm-hmm. you know you you know the prime minister is trying to get a grip of the wheel again but you know it is being rested on both sides of the parliamentary party mm. by the moderate and by the right right now and that's why it's kind of you know she's not in necessarily in control of the event so i agree with oscar some of this is an attempt to do uh, the right things and to and to course correct 100 you know this is why the markets have stabilized because they've junked all the you know all the worst excesses of trustonomics and we have a reassuring and calm new chancellor who's prepared to you know to get back to you know sound economics and center ground you know political thinking mm. but but at the same time as as you do that then you've got you know, Sweller Braverman, uh, jumping ship uh, in a less than subtle kind of pointed uh, salvo at the prime minister. So she's not overly, you know. I, I can see the attempt to get to get a grip and reconstruct in office, but it, it, it's like trying to trying to build a tower on quicksand at the moment. It just keeps on sort of giving out from underneath you, right? Yeah. Gosh,
0: we do love our analogies, actually. So we'll hold on to the car and we'll hold on to the tower in quicksand. I think that's a good one. I'm writing that one down as well, so we can, um haha, keep building on that. Uh, right, good. That's the kind of that's the staffing issues at number ten, and they uh, they're fascinating because sometimes I think you know special advisors, or whatever, can feel so obscure um, to if you're outside of the kind of Westminster world, but actually it speaks to what is going on <laughs> in terms of how people are being moved in and out the door, the direction of travel, what the purpose is, you know, strong authority or otherwise, all of that. There's so much to kind of unpack in the in the moving and shaking um, of political advisors. This is Whitehall Sources taking you behind the door of number 10, hearing from those who have lived it, who have shaped policy and decision making, and as you're hearing already, letting them help us understand what on earth is going on in politics today. It's Callum McDonald, Kirsty Buchanan and Oscar Reddrop. Subscribe to the podcast. Thank you. Well done for finding it. Subscribe, press follow. Make sure you get all of our updates and be part of the podcast. You can email anytime. Hello at whitehallsources.com. Uh, to become one of our official sources. It's like being a, in a fan club. Be one of the sources. Hello at whitehallsources.com. In the next couple of minutes on this podcast, we are opening the doors to this correspondent unit to read your messages. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with resident hotels. And unlike politicians' approval ratings, if it's consistency you yearn for, resident hotels are rated at the top of TripAdvisor. Out of 1,200 hotels in London, the resident Covent Garden is number one. Resident insiders who are trained to give you secret tips and tricks of the neighbourhood in which you stay are, to be honest, a better support than most cabinet secretaries provide to the Prime Minister at any given moment. In London, you can also stay in Kensington, Soho and Victoria. Eddie reviewed the resident Covent Garden on the 6th of October, He said, Awesome hotel in superb location, great staff and beautiful clean and comfy rooms. Highly recommend. Your exceptional experience awaits at resident hotels. This is Whitehall Sources. Thanks for being with us. You can email anytime, hello at whitehallsources.com, wherever you are listening around the world. And hello to the one or two people in Indonesia who I believe have found this podcast, according to the the stats that I've been looking at as well. Gosh, well, you must be thinking of what is going on here. Uh, You can have your say on the podcast. Uh, You can become one of our sources. That's the idea here. Uh, Get in touch. Say hello. Uh, Perhaps you want to comment on what we're talking about or add something. What would you like us to be talking about you can email hello at whitehallsources.com and I should say that if you are working in Downing Street and around Whitehall you are also very welcome to become an actual source of information that's fine believe me Um, anonymity is available on request so email hello at whitehallsources.com and your name can go no further should you wish it not to. Uh, We're on social media as well. You've probably seen uh, by now. Uh, So just have a little like on Twitter, Instagram and TikTok. Search for Whitehall Sources and you will find us there. Right, let us open the doors for the first time then to the correspondence Unit. Lovely, lovely, lovely stuff. Right, let's um, check in first of all with Matt, who last Thursday we were asking for predictions on our first ever episode, which believe it or not was just a week ago. Uh, And Matt emailed saying, my prediction for this week... Ross remains, and the polls calm down, which I feel like he got about half right. Would you would we give him half of that? Half of his predictions correct? Get I mean, she is still here.
1: A solid 50% for now, but we don't come out till tomorrow morning.
0: We shall see. Yes, that's true. Uh, that's a very good point. And the polls have. I I wonder what polls you specifically mean, Matt, because the polls are quite brutal for the Conservative Party still, to, to you know, to this moment at time of recording. Um, let's say hello to Martin next, who on Sunday, and I think the the days are important given how quickly things are changing, Martin says, hi all, my updated predictions, he sent several emails, but this was the last one, Tory MPs are busy filming their leadership bid videos, and Suella Braverman's deciding if it's too early to throw her hat in, said Martin on Sunday.
2: Mm. oh martin that is good <laughs> the podcast martin i know
0: that's a great maybe we should do this keep your email your predictions because this is brilliant so yes well done martin because um based on what we've already talked about on the pod so far you're right uh good right let's go on to douglas next hi Callum and Cole. great first pot that's kirsty and oscar by the way for future reference Great first podcast, plenty of material, you're right. We live in interesting times and they aren't going to get boring anytime soon. Well, yes, you're not wrong about that, Douglas. Thank you. Uh, Tom emailed to say, question for you all. Will the past week at Westminster put voters off conviction politicians? Are we seeing a revival of the appeal of the managerial politician? Which is an interesting thought. So the uh, is this conviction politicians versus managerial politicians, Kirsty?
1: Uh, it is a great question. Mm. Um, I, I think what we're seeing is a, uh, a course correction back to the centre ground of British politics, where my own personal view is that all politics should sit in the centre ground. It is where the values of the vast majority of the British public are. And uh, to the point I think I've made before, mm. you know, there are two... Kind of legs on which all governments stride forward. One is competence, and the other is representing the values uh, of the public that they serve. And you know, we are British; we are a liberal democracy. Uh, we like our we like our values pretty much planted in the solid centre ground. And that's where sometimes conviction can stray a party off that centre ground, and it usually doesn't end well.
2: Mm. Oscar, can I uh, do? do my weekly Boris promotion yes, in response to that. Yes, please. This
1: could become a regular... I should get theme music
0: for this one too, shouldn't I, be really? The
2: last man standing. Well, but, but no, just to answer that question, which is a very, very good question, very apt for where we're at, but you can get a combination of the two, and the combination of the two I'm talking about is managerial, but with personality and direction. And I actually think Boris and Rishi, for periods of time working together, found that middle ground quite nicely, I don't feel like the I mean in some areas yes the party shot off to the right another in some people's opinions but you know economically we were we were re- you know hugely supportive and caring and and uh, you know I mean we matched some of the spending commitments that um, <laughs> that your McDonald and Corbyn would have called for <laughs> and then also just in terms of personality and style we had the Rishi kind of managerial you know very slick Um, boardroom style politician and we had the personality and the vision and the direction of Boris so the two can marry I think
0: Mm, really interesting and great question if you've got questions for Kirsty and Oscar particularly um then email and I think the predictions thing let's let's do that in this moment and time and spell of chaos as you listen to this so we'll publish this on Thursday morning the 20th of October as you listen to it whatever day you listen to it from there on what is your prediction for what will happen, won't happen, what we'll be talking about next week? Because that's been very fun, actually, to have a couple of those that are pretty <laughs> on the button. Uh, email hello at whitehallsources.com. Um, I know you guys, uh, you know, you get more texts than we can shake a stick at. Your WhatsApps are alive all the time. You know, people are getting in touch about the new podcast. Um, how's, it, how's it going down, Kirsty?
1: Uh, It's going down well. I I do have to have a uh, a slight hold my hands up, mere culpa moment. Though I did, I did get a complaint. Oh gosh, my first complaint. uh, A complaint from a very good friend of mine. So it's all, it's all in in good spirit. Mm. But um, when I was talking about uh, the fantastically talented civil servants that operate in Number Ten, I uh, unbelievably and unforgivably neglected to mention the private office the private office is a small and elite band of of civil servants who uh in the prime minister's case but you also get private offices for for departmental sectors of state ministers they act like uh, the gatekeepers for the minister uh, they are the liaison point for the minister and the department and other departments and they manage the uh, minister's diary and frankly the entire machinery of government would fall over were it not for the private office. So uh, how could I, and I'm sorry, and uh, I apologize for neglecting to mention them.
0: There we go, job done. You can send them the link to this episode. Now, uh, at this point, we want to turn to the the real drama of the week actually, um, which was kind of sparked accidentally, it has to be said, around Liz Truss and question time. Um, and various strategies and whatever, around kind of keeping when she was secretary of state around keeping her away from what is quite a grueling environment question time face-to-face with the public, lots of questions, all of that, that is on our previous episode and online. One of the things that needs addressed though, Kirsty is who it was that Liz Truss was trying to avoid (laughs) the one person that she didn't want to be on there because it is time to reveal who that person is. The internet has been a wash in the last couple of days with who it could be TikTok and Twitter came to life there were many many suggestions including David Dimbleby himself he didn't make a suggestion as in people thought maybe she was just trying to avoid David Dimbleby Um, it it brought me great pleasure that shortly before recording this very episode Owen Jones Sorry. Owen Jones, who describes himself as socialist, anti-fascist, Guardian columnist, author, podcaster, YouTuber, and geriatric millennial, posted a video called Does Liz Truss Hate Me? (laughs) Who would have thought this is where we'd get to in week one? It's had 5,000 views, by the way, at the time of recording. Owen Jones, talking about himself for nearly four minutes, probably deserves some sort of award for that and going back with clips of Liz Truss, with texts from producers of Question Time, trying to dissect whether it was in fact him that Liz Truss was trying to avoid in her appearance on Question Time. Over to you, Kirsty.
1: Well, I hate to disappoint Owen, uh, but he is not Mystery Mr X. (laughs) Uh, That title actually belongs to uh, columnist reporter Peter Hitchens. And the reason that uh, Liz wasn't keen on appearing on Question Time with Peter was at the time she was Justice Secretary, Peter Hitchens is a a strident campaigner against legalisation of cannabis and he had taken great exception to the Justice Secretary uh, because when she was a Liberal Democrat back in her willowy youth, she used to uh, support the campaign to legalised cannabis and in fact i think at one point she wanted to plaster a load of free the weed posters all over her university (laughs) before she was advised that that was perhaps going a little too far uh so mystery mr x is in fact peter hitchens
0: ah there we go disappointment once again for owen jones Uh, Thank you, Kirsty. Thanks for clearing that up. That is, honestly, the number of people on TikTok and on Twitter who were scouring the internet for all of Liz Truss's appearances on Question Time uh, to try to pin down uh, who it was was just really quite something. So thank you for clearing that up. This is Whitehall Sources. What a time we're having of it on episode three. Time now to introduce you to a brand new feature. Checkers and balances. This is a brand new part of the podcast. It's called Checkers and Balances. My thanks to Sir Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson for helping us introduce this item. This is the part of the podcast where we invite an advisor from an opposition party to join us and consider where things stand. So, this week, he was head of research for the Labour Party, helps to prepare Ed Miliband, Harriet Harman and Jeremy Corbyn for Prime Minister's questions between 2010 and 2016. I also read that as a Labour staffer, he worked on three general election campaigns None of which Labour won. Welcome to Whitehall, sources. Tom Hamilton. Hello, hello. How are you? Hello,
3: I'm very well, thank you. Yes. Cool. Looking forward to a general election campaign that Labour might win, although not one that I'm going to be <laughs> heavily involved in. I <laughs> suspect.
0: Nice. That's a punchy start. We love that. Um, it's great to have you here today, Tom, because of the significance, I suppose, of Sir Keir Starmer coming up against Liz Truss at Prime Minister's Questions this week. Um, there was one take from Sam Bright of Byline Times who said Liz Truss just got demolished so brutally by Keir Starmer that you could practically see Tory MPs throwing paper airplanes in the Commons to Sir Graham Brady, <laughs> which you know doesn't hold back. What do you what do you make of Sir Keir Starmer's position as we record this on Wednesday evening?
3: Well, I mean he's in a he's in a pretty strong position for obvious reasons. I mean any any Labour leader or any any political leader who's got a 20 to 35 point lead in the polls is going to be in a fairly strong position um, and not that vulnerable to challenge. He's obviously at the moment, things could change, he's at the moment the favourite to be the next Prime Minister and his opponent is in a really bad position. I think some of Keir Starmer's strong position derives from the fact that he's um, done a pretty good job over the last two years but to be fair, a lot of it also derived from the fact that the Tories have done um, a lot of damage to themselves um, over, especially over the last sort of 12 months and especially over the last, how long is it now? Five, six weeks <laughs> since um, since Liz Truss became Prime Minister. And, you know, I think Keir Starmer would admit that he, he didn't make Liz Truss um, change the entire economic policy direction of the Conservative Party and then change it back again Um, sacking various people along the way, Um, but it it certainly helped from a Labour point of view.
1: Mm.
0: It's fascinating, I suppose, to consider the pressure of a moment like today's for a leader of the opposition, because in some ways it felt like for Prime Minister's questions, there was more responsibility on Keir Starmer to to win Prime Minister's questions than there was an expectation of Liz Truss losing, if I can put it like that.
3: Yeah, in a way, uh, that's right. And one of the things that we always used to, really dread when when I used to prepare leader of the opposition for PMQs was weeks when um when it looked like an own goal sorry an open an open goal for the um, for, for the leader of the opposition which does happen sometimes when the headlines are so terrible for the prime minister that all you've got to do is um, is just go up and sort of kick the ball into an empty net and one of the problems with that is that it never is an open goal really and um, the prime minister always has something to say always has some attacks to throw, and also when there is such a so-called open goal, she basically know, knows what the questions are going to be, which is a bit of an advantage. I think this week is different. Um, you know, I was um, I was slightly worried about you know whether whether Keir Starmer would live up to expectations. He did a pretty straightforward job. It was quite route one. He asked the questions that I think all of us would have expected him to ask, and um, got the answers that well. They, they were they were not good answers but I can't really think what the better answers would have been and that's and that's because it's not like the sort of open goal we so-called open goal we sometimes see where there's a bit of a policy problem but the prime minister knows a bit more about what they're going to do and they can sort of shift position a bit mm-hmm. this is a fundamental strategic hole that the prime minister has dug for herself you know she was she was elected to do one thing in terms of economic policy she was the front person for that economic policy i think there there are weaknesses in her her ability to be a front person anyway but she's completely reversed that policy she's now the front person for the opposite economic policy that she spent the whole summer arguing was a terrible idea and she's got to defend that and it's basically keir
0: starmer's policy at this
3: point um, isn't it well it, it, it isn't. It isn't. It's Keir Starmer's policy, in as much as he has a rule that uh, that you that you shouldn't have unfunded tax cuts or or spending pledges. That's that's as far as it's his policy. I don't think he would um, uh, agree with quite a lot of what Jonah Hunt is doing, but it's not his job to at the moment. Mm-hmm. And what it means is that when um, when Liz Truss says things like you know you can't take difficult decisions. It it, it doesn't work because, you know, we all know she she has taken difficult decisions. She took the really difficult decision to sack her Chancellor and abandon her economic policy. And that leaves Keir Star in the position of of being able to say something like, well, you know, I can guarantee to you, the British people, that I will never have to take a decision as difficult as sacking my Chancellor and shifting my economic policy Mm -hmm. because my economic policy isn't stupid. Mm -hmm. I I mean, that sort of thing is open to him um, in a way that wouldn't be with some other kinds of problems that a government might face and has faced in the past.
0: Yeah. Oscar, what do you make of that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think what Keir Starmer, his, his performances overall have really improved since when, uh, when I was working at number 10 with Boris. He was often charged with being boring, didn't communicate in a language that people who aren't obsessed with politics would, you know, that would cut through to. And then at times, I think he then reacted to that by overreaching. Uh, uh, and, and again, that, that didn't come across particularly well at all. What he did today was, if it, if, it was a, if it was a boxer, it's knowing you've got someone on the ropes, but knowing you don't need to over, overexert yourself. And it was just very measured, smart jabbing, rather than overloading, you know, big overhand rights. And that definitely presents a different problem for a prime minister, it, it be because it's it, it's it's the ease of which he did it. And actually, that we talk on the show about, you know, TikTok and how things are all clipped up, and for the media. And actually, his, you know, the recital of "gone, gone," you know, that, that has gone viral, and it's gone viral to people who aren't actually mm. particularly interested in politics. On on the face of it, so he has he has got he has got a hell of a lot better. And just just finally. What I would say is that Liz, what it did allow her to do, and maybe this is just morsels of, you know, crumbs of comfort potentially, but what it did allow Liz to do, I thought, under immensely difficult situ- uh, um, circumstances, was show grit, bravery, and a bit of fight. And that has been lacking from Liz as a prime minister. I mean, almost just publicly in terms mm-hmm. of her interviews in the press conference. And that was the first time we really saw that.
0: Is there a? I suppose one thing I considered, Kirsty, in Prime Minister's Questions today was was actually Liz Truss not shying away from what she first said to Chris Mason on the BBC earlier this week that she was sorry. You know, she really kind of stepped up and said mistakes were made, and is doing her best to turn that into actually a, a strength and a positive. And in some ways, that's a really interesting narrative to drive at because if you are successful with that, actually you start humanising yourself as a politician in some ways, don't you? That you say, "I make mistakes," but actually we all do. I've stood up and owned it, as we would all encourage our children or our nieces and nephews to do—to confess a mistake and sort of get past it. So I wonder—it was just inter- I wonder if that came across as a strength though in Prime Minister's Questions.
1: I mean it took her a while to get there didn't it (laughs) to say to say I'm sorry and show some humility I you know from a comms point of view it's clearly the right thing to do Um, and I agree with Oscar as well I think she uh, demonstrated some real grit and kind of fighting spirit today but that doesn't you know and actually you know i've I've listened to quite a few vox pops and stuff from people you know from from the public, and they've all said, "Well, you know, maybe she should be given a chance. you know she's made a mistake, we all make mistakes, she's apologized, she's put it right, brackets, let's give her a chance. But the reality is is much like the coronation of Liz truss you know the the removal of liz Truss isn't a matter for the public although obviously clearly if you've looked at the polls lately uh, uh i think the let's give her a chance kind of crowd is is very much in the minority um you know it's it's within the hands of the parliamentary party now yeah. you know Keir, uh secured to his enormous credit has spent two very difficult years uh dragging the Labour Party back to the centre ground, Mm. purging the party of, you know, some of the extremists and uh, cranks that, you know, joined the party uh, under uh, Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and resulted in the Labour Party being the only mainstream party ever to face uh, an investigation uh, and a ruling from the, you know, Colleges and Human Rights Commission uh, over its handling of anti-Semitism cases so he has spent two years doing that real heavy lifting of getting his party back into a kind of electoral uh fighting position himself and what really sort of struck me and tom i i, I you know i'd be interested in your view on this i have rarely in the last two or three years seen uh, i know obviously we had covid but you know, a, a Labour Party more enthused and more rallying behind. There were some good gags there from Sakir, There was also some thinking on his feet stuff. And it all led to sort of roars of approval, you know, which was painfully kind of juxtaposed with this stony silence from the back benches <laughs> behind Liz Truss.
3: Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, clearly the, the Labour benches were really enthused. One of the weird things about today's keys was um, the leaders' exchanges felt to me a lot quicker than they often are. Um, and I think that was partly because they, they were decent questions and, um, you know, Trust didn't spend ages on the answer, but I think it was also because there wasn't a lot of noise for most of the time when, um, when, when Trust was speaking and those things do always slow it down a, a bit. They, they add atmosphere. They also add a dimension that some of the audience really don't like, but um, one of the reasons it, it went so quickly was, was that silence. I thought, Liz Truss wasn't terrible today Um she was um, she was pretty terrible last week she was clearly really on the ropes today she sounded confident she knew what she was saying on each answer I didn't find any of it very convincing which is partly sort of my partisan hat on um, but you know she didn't she didn't sort of fall over in a way that you know. last week she she really did make, there was one big error when she said that uh, there wouldn't be any spending cuts, um, slightly unexpectedly. I think, um, I gather that took number 10 by surprise as much as it took um, the Labour Party by surprise, and they, they've already rode back on that. There was none of that this week. I don't think there were any hostages to fortune. She sounded fine, but it's it's the over it's the overall strategic position that I just think is completely unsalvageable for the, the Tories under under her leadership.
1: I mean, I, I wanted to ask you because I mean, it, it looks you know from the you know from the outside that the Conservative Party is becoming nigh on ungovernable. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that you know the Labour Party was in a was in a similar state with uh, Jeremy Corbyn. What does that? What did that feel like from from your side to be caught in a you know a, an almost ungovernable, unelectable uh, uh, position with, with seemingly no way out?
3: Yeah, I mean, one of the big problems under and, under Corbyn's leadership was that a huge proportion of the parliamentary Labour Party was not was never reconciled to his leadership. Became somewhat reconciled to his leadership when Labour did quite well after twenty seventeen, but were never very never very happy about it. And when you have a leader who doesn't have the broad backing of the parliamentary party it's really really hard. Liz Truss is in a similar sort of position not quite as bad a position in the in the first place as Corbyn as Corbyn was because rather more MPs backed her but still only about a third of the of the Tory parliamentary party more came on board later as she looked like the inevitable victor. But if people don't broadly back your program and are convinced by it, then it's really hard. If things start to fall apart, um, as they did, they didn't fall apart because of Tories not backing it. They fell apart because because the markets said no. But she doesn't have that depth of support to fall back on. And Keir Starmer, for all for, you know, whatever you might think of his strengths and weaknesses, he's um, he's always um, had the. Um, the the backing of a solid majority of his parliamentary party and actually the party in the country but especially his parliamentary party that makes a big big difference
2: what do you think's next for kia because our understanding when we when we were at number 10 was that it was almost like a three-step plan it was you know detoxify the labour party uh step step back a little i think we're probably in this phase now and you know subtly drive but predominantly step back and allow the Conservative government to eat itself, and then come out and actually provide the alternative. What do you? How far? How, how close are we to stage three? And what do you think stage three ultimately looks like?
3: I think I think that's broadly right. I think I think one of the really difficult things for any opposition party is pacing. Um, you've got you can't announce all your policy on day one. Partly because you don't quite know what it is, but also because you, you need to sequence it so that. Things get heard when, they've been, when people are going to listen to you. There will be, and I, 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 this isn't sort of inside information, this is just sort of pretty obviously the case, there will be a number of really big announcements designed to appeal to the public in areas that Labour hasn't talked about very much over the next couple of years. And changes to what we think the political timetable looks like will affect when those happen. Although I would still expect the next election to be fairly late, which would mean two more party conference cycles before the next um, before the next election at uh, both of which there'll be a lot of sort of policies laid out and um, so those sort of big moments they will be building towards i would expect that it that they will already know at least some of what those announcements are and it's going to be really tempting to to get them out early um, but this is not particularly a a labour policy moment i don't think that's not what this is all about this is all about the the tories falling over and labour just needing to look solid but it's well, the thing is, the conventional wisdom is Labour can't go into an election without a much more detailed program than it's got. But you know, it's thirty points up. I mean, it can go into an election, you know, s- singing a song, and that that will do as things stand. Oh, you,
1: you say that you say that, Tom. Though, but you're you're talking to a woman who was was on the twenty seventeen election campaign, and the uh, then Prime Minister went in with a twenty. Unassailable twenty point lead, and I and I wonder whether with Sakir right now, whether it's the same kind of makeup. The support is broad, but it is shallow.
3: I think I think that's right. I don't believe that um, that Labour is particularly complacent inside Kier's office, inside Labour HQ, inside the Parliamentary Party. Um, you know, clearly they've moved to a mindset where they really think that they can win. They've got a very good chance, but they haven't got to a point of thinking it's inevitable at all. Not least because. It now looks really likely there will be a change of Tory leader, and that uh, we don't know when. Um, but that will change the dynamics of politics again in ways that are quite hard to predict. But it's hard to see how it could get worse for the Tories. So it would probably get better for them um, in some way. Um, what, what we don't know is whether we've got to that sort of point. That I'm old, I'm old enough just about to remember, you know, the, the 1990s when sort of the 93 to 97 period was just this sort of rolling clown car of a government that couldn't do anything to get itself out of these sort of deep deep polling deficits and never did right up to the time of the ninety seven election, or whether it's a a bit more volatile than that and the Tories are in a position to claw it back. um, Labour has to act as if it's the latter and that they can claw it back. I think they will. They're not, um, you know, one thing that being in opposition for more than a decade does to any party, is it knocks any complacency out of you. Um, And, um, you know, Labour are used to to losing and they're not not expecting to win, even if there are siren voices in their head telling them that they can't lose from here.
1: Thank you so much for your insight. That was
3: great, yeah. Thanks a lot. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Yes,
0: all right. Bye-bye. Great to speak to Tom there and just to kind of consider the importance of moments like this. I think particularly when it can safely be said that the Prime Minister is in a, a weakened position. And that's not something new. Certainly it's come quickly for Liz Truss, um, but it's not something new. I wonder if we go back to Starmer versus Johnson, which was only a few months ago, Oscar, in July this year, 2022. Um, I mean, Boris Johnson, he shuffled through his government as it crumbled around him. There were resignations happening as quickly as you like. And I suppose notably, Keir Starmer, this was the famous, is this the first recorded case of the sinking ship leaving the rat? So I just wondered what it was like working with a prime minister who was going into PMQs in that sort of weakened position.
2: Well, it was very tough. I mean, I think Boris at the time had two relatively, despite difficult situations, effective methods of dealing with PMQs with Starmer one would be he was very good at surprising him. He was very good at surprising Keir, I always felt. And he would land a line that was very clippable, that would sometimes distract away from some of the problems that he was facing, some of the scrutiny he was facing as Prime Minister. So he's very good at that. And often by surprising Keir Starmer as much as possible, because obviously, you know, the opposition, you know, he is vaguely aware of, of what's to come but that would make Starmer's uh, retorts and questions feel really stiff and, uh, you know, kind of pre-rehearsed. Because a lot of the time when people go, oh, Starmer, you're very boring and stiff, they put that down to him and his faults. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, there's some truth in that. but But Boris should take some credit and responsibility for that. He was very good at making him look that way. And then when times were, as you just alluded to, were really tough... Boris, and we've talked about this before in previous um, podcasts, I think was very good at handing over, you know, chunks of flesh. He was good at, at being pretty somber and staring down the barrel. And, you know, at times you'd, there'd be Labour MPs also, because you know, forget the bit with, with Starmer, afterwards, you know, MPs around the House are allowed to have their, their questions and their say. And he was very, very good at almost absorbing that tension. Mm.
0: Really interesting. Uh, of course, 24 hours after that, Boris Johnson had resigned or, you know, announced his departure. So uh, that was such a pressure point. And b- before that, though, if we go back to January 2019, it was Jeremy Corbyn versus Theresa May. Um, they were facing off. This was th- perhaps most notably, and sh- shout out to Political's morning playbook email for highlighting these. But the the, the, the that situation was... Um, That PMQs was the morning after Theresa May's Brexit deal got absolutely tanked in the Commons by the biggest margin in history, Kirsty.
1: Thank you (laughs) for reminding me.
0: We've actually talked about this before, I remembered, as I was considering this today. So it must have been just tumultuous, difficult, and, and that, I mean, Theresa May's leadership was kind of on the brink, as political notes, for a few months more after that. But that was a real pressure point of Prime Minister's questions to get the Prime Minister ready for.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, it's it was always an odd one with Jeremy Corbyn, no matter what the circumstances were, because uh, you were playing to two different audiences, if you like. Jeremy Corbyn's entire purpose uh, for uh, Prime Minister's questions wasn't to to, to play to uh, the broadcast clip or to, to play to the audience or to play to his own backbenches. It was to play entirely for a social media clip. Uh, so it was... It was always difficult. Frankly, a lot of the time we were more worried about the incoming from our own backbenches than from from Jeremy Corbyn. But in essence, the entire thing was just a mechanism by which he could. You uh, were usually the last question. He'd sort of ratchet up the anger quotient by by twenty, um, and he'd get very shouty. And that was the clip that would end up on social media, which is where, of course, obviously most of his his followers and most of his uh interaction, if you like, from a media point of view was done because, you know, he stripped out the prism of traditional media and went straight for social media so he could talk unvarnished and unfiltered uh to, to the public. So it it was always a peculiar one for us. Uh we had so much kind of incoming uh from our own side, if you like, that uh that actually a lot of the time, uh Jeremy Corbyn was frankly the least of our problems. <laughs>
0: Uh, thank you both on that note I have just had um, a whatsapp from one of my friends sending me the link to Liz Truss and the Lettuce that the Daily Star is currently live streaming to see which lasts longer at this point your guess is as good as ours in any case we will be back well next Thursday at the latest but who knows what will happen between now and then thank you for listening share us with your friends make sure you follow and subscribe and we will chat to you soon